Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Sarah Doody. Sarah is the founder and CEO of Career Strategy Lab, the business she started in 2017 as a 45-minute lunch and learn that has since grown into a leading career coaching company for user experience professionals. By helping her clients to develop career skills and confidence, Sarah's clients have secured jobs at companies including Google, Amazon, American Express, Home Depot, Harvard, Warner Brothers Entertainment, and Salesforce. Alongside Career Strategy Lab, Sarah is also a consulting product strategist and UX designer, helping organizations to bring new products to life and to optimize the user experience of products that are already in market. In 2011, which seems like a lifetime ago thanks to the past few years, Sarah was invited by General Assembly to design the curriculum for and to teach their first ever 12-week intensive pilot course on user experience design in New York City. Sarah has also been invited to give talks and to teach workshops all over the world, including across the pond at UX London, at StartCon in Australia, which is across the other pond, and at Productized in Portugal, to name a few. And now, Sarah's beaming into Brave UX from, I believe, Salt Lake City in Utah. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. And you got it right. I'm in Salt Lake City, Utah, nestled up in the mountains here. Yeah, and we were just talking before we hit record, and you've just literally got back from some time on the slopes. So I'm very, yes. very jealous. Yes, I did a bunch of powder runs this morning and a few little hikes to get to some fresh stashes of powder. So it was great. And then I had to come back, fix my hair, and here I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, hair's looking great, and I'm really pleased that you could be here. And look, this might sound like a bit of a strange place to start, but I have been trying to place your accent and ah. I had been trying to do that through LinkedIn and I noticed as far back as I could go in terms of your <laughs> education history right you studied in Portland then you went to Texas and then you went up to Canada into mm -hmm. a town called Athabasca what is the story there and why <laughs> am I finding it so difficult to place your accent yeah so I actually was born and grew up in Canada. So I grew up uh, just very close to Ottawa, the capital. And I did my elementary and high school there. And then I moved to the United States, which I thought would just be a one year, you know, expedition. I'm also a dual citizen. So that, that was very easy for me to do. And I kind of, you know, a stubborn teenager. I just thought I'm going to the United States. And then here I am all those years later, but yeah, I did very long story short. I ended up graduating from a school in Canada. I kind of bounced around through university to different schools and to reduce the amount of credits I would lose in all my bouncing around. I basically completed my entire degree from uh, Athabasca University, which was one of the leading like 
distance universities in the world at the time. So I didn't, I've never actually been to Athabasca. I didn't go to a graduation or anything. I just, they sent me a diploma in the mail and that was that. So this restlessness, you, you use the term bouncing around, is this, I get a sense you've got a lot of energy from what I've seen and this sort of <laughs> restlessness that you've exhibited in your, I suppose, your earlier life when you were, when you were studying, is this something that shows up for you in other areas of your life? That's a great question. I would say it's a combination, it's a combination of restlessness and curiosity and I think a little bit of um, calculated risk-taking. <laughs> you know, uh, growing up, I was always very creative and very technical. I, I was voted most creative in high school or some, you know, random thing that other students vote on. But yeah, you know, in hindsight, I don't think it's any surprise that I ended up doing what I do. But the idea of, I didn't even know what user experience was, you know, in high school, I'm that old. And I do remember in high school taking an entrepreneurial class and thinking to myself, why would I work for myself when I could work for another company and they would just pay me and there would be no <laughs> risk. And then I worked for some companies and I guess I got restless and I thought to myself, I'm not doing this. <laughs> Yeah, and I do want to come to what you have done, especially most recently with Career Strategy Lab. And as I mentioned in your introduction, you, you're also a product consultant, or you have been in the past, and you've consulted on a wide variety of products. But before we do that, I actually listened to your interview on the UX Usability podcast and prep oh. for today. Yeah, and you said something on that, and I just want to quote you now. You said, I think the world could benefit if everyone could just understand the context of where we're each coming from. Context mm. is so crucial, and we jump to conclusions so fast, and everyone is not really listening a lot of the times these days. Now, given that we're at the very beginning of this Brave UX conversation, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to make your context clear for our listeners. And you can take this where you want, but I thought just to get you started, what does UX mean to you and why have you chosen to invest your career in it? Mm. So I think that for me, the reason that I ended up pursuing user experience and it kind of goes with what you said in the in your intro where you said product puzzle and for as long as I can remember I've kind of been solving puzzles and I remember one time my family was going on a road trip and my mom went to the toy store and came home with this like advanced puzzle <laughs> and she was so excited she thought it would keep me occupied and I sat down and solved it like you know, in minutes, and she thought it would keep me <laughs> occupied on an eight hour trip. <laughs> but I've always been solving literal puzzles, or invisible puzzles. And by that, I mean, like, people or situations, like for as long as I can remember, that has just been how my brain works. And so I think through all of that puzzle solving that I've been doing, it made me realize the importance of, of context and understanding a whole situation and not just what literally came out of someone's mouth or what just happened, like well, what led up to that moment. And I remember like career counselors told me I should pursue journalism 
or psychology or psychiatry and things like that. And so I think, you know, hindsight is always so interesting. I don't think it's any surprise I'm doing what I do, but everything I was always curious about was in that realm of puzzle solving, sense making, understanding people, etc. And that whole context thing, like I'm so passionate about that. I think it's the researcher side of me and a couple of years ago I had this idea, you know, what if we could teach basics of user research? to the masses, like to non-UX people, and help people understand how to find context through what we do with research. So bit of a side tangent, but I really did, right? I wrote this book, it's not published yet, it's on Google Drive somewhere, and it was all about how to find context. And I developed this framework called the three Ps. It's kind of silly, but it's also so simple, it works. So the three Ps are, pause, ponder, proceed. So the idea is in any situation, especially those where you feel like, I use the words, you feel like you're spiraling. So you're going from zero to you know end of the world in 60 seconds, right? You receive a text message, the phone rings, that look someone gives you. And so this pause, ponder, proceed, it was, or maybe will in the future, help people understand how to recognize those moments of spiral, because a lot of times we don't, and then ponder being the bulk of it, which is where the superpower of research comes in. And then you find that context to then proceed with the right lens, not the lens that is possibly invented, because I'm really into neuroscience and I forget which podcast, but I 100% can attribute this to a podcast that Brene Brown was on. I think it was the Dax Shepard podcast, but she said that our brains need a beginning, a middle and an end. So when something happens, our brains will just make up the next thing that's going to happen and the outcome because they need that. And the kicker for me was when she said, our brains don't know the difference between fact or fiction. And I thought, so if we can, if our brains don't know the difference between fact and fiction, if I could take my knowledge of user research and help people uncover fact, maybe that would be a good thing for the world. Anyway, we'll see if the book ever happens. I'm a little busy these days, but maybe I need to hire a, a ghostwriter to bring it over the finish line. <laughs> Well, it sounds like the bulk of it is ready and waiting to go. So no yeah. doubt you, you will hopefully get some time in the future to finish it. It's curious I, that you mentioned this pause, ponder and proceed. Because yep. just last week I recorded an episode of Brave UX with David Dylan Thomas, who is the author of uh, Design for Cognitive Bias and also mm. the podcast that at the Cognitive Bias podcast. And something that he learned through his understanding of bias and how it shows up is that our biases are obviously our brains making mistakes, but they're based mm. on pattern matching. So it's our brain trying to remove some of the load from our decision-making in our day-to-day, -day, and sometimes it gets it wrong. And 95% of the decisions that we're making are happening in the background. So it's mm -hmm. only that 5% that we're consciously aware of. But your insight there around catching yourself when you start to spiral yes. 
that pause is actually one of the same techniques that you can use when you become conscious of what your biases are and you can oh. pause to examine them and then make a decision as to how you want to behave. So I think that's Interesting. De definitely onto something there and it's a, yeah. it sounds like a useful thing to bring to the world. It, it keeps coming up in podcasts. So the mm. researcher in me has to pause and pay attention to that as much as, <laughs> as much as writing a book, book just sounds like so much work. <laughs> I it know does. it is because I already did it. <laughs> well, you're over the hump. You're, Sarah, you're, you're actually most well known for your work helping UXs to get their portfolios together. And mm -hmm. that was through a program that you developed called the UX Portfolio Formula. But you've also yes. recently taken that to the next level. I understand the portfolio formula still exists, but you've launched Career Strategy Lab and I understand that that is a, a much broader value proposition for UXs. Who mm -hmm. is it for? What's it for? And why did the world of UX need Career Strategy Lab? So Career Strategy Lab is for UX and product professionals, really, who need to learn how to articulate their skills and experience and translate that into all of those things you need in your job search, whether it's portfolio, resume, LinkedIn, and the, the, the literal skill and art of a job search and preparing for interviews. And another way to think of it is it is not for someone that just heard about user experience a month or two months ago and you know, is trying to figure out the difference between UX and UI and is looking for a boot camp because I know there's a lot of people out there and we will not teach you user, user experience necessarily. We're about getting you hired. And the second part to your question, why did the world of user experience need this? So this really came from my observations as a researcher and seeing my inbox and all of my DM messages on every single platform. Some people even text me, which is a little creepy, but you know, questions about the job search. How do I get hired? How do I find jobs? How do I prepare for interviews? I've applied to 400 jobs and I've had three interviews. And it all actually makes me very angry to be honest, because since launching Career Strategy Lab, I've been very diligent about understanding who the people are that are interested in this program. And we have an application if you want to join Career Strategy Lab, A, so we can filter out the people who are way too beginner for this, but B, so I can understand a little bit more about UX education these days. And I will tell you, I don't have the exact number off the top of my head, I would say at least 70% of the people that have joined this program attended a paid UX bootcamp. Some of them were 15 or $20,000. So the problem is that despite, I would argue almost every single bootcamp out there saying they're going to help you create a portfolio and get hired. And some of them guaranteeing that they don't do a good job at it. And the, the reason they don't do a great job is because I believe it's an afterthought. So having created General Assembly's first ever program, which obviously has evolved, were we thinking about the job search? 
No. I mean, the conclusion after that experiment was we only scratch the surface. So I can't imagine how a boot camp could squeeze what I teach into a week or two module. And I think I filled a really needed gap. And it's very rewarding when people send testimonials. Like I was just reviewing them this weekend. One person got hired 55 days after joining our program. Another one was 47 days. People triple their salary, double their salary. So it it's there's need for it and it works. And it kind of markets itself, which is, I mean, <laughs> the dream, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely from a, a creative <laughs> entrepreneur's point of view. I just want to yeah. rewind slightly and mm -hmm. uh, want to ask you, so is it you that we can blame for the birth of UX boot camps then? So I was thinking about this the other day, like, am I the problem? <laughs> no, I think that, you know, General Assembly approached myself and I did co-create this with a collaborator and I had no, I, I knew what General Assembly was at the time, but they, I think they only had the New York campus or maybe they had a few elsewhere. So I don't think, you know, I realized, I don't think there was any way to predict this, but I do think that probably a whole other podcast topic like the rise of UX boot camps and the initial wave of them, which did really strive for quality and excellence and all of these things. And now I, I would confidently say that I think a lot of boot camps are made created by tech people who just see an opportunity and think they're going to create a boot camp and raise money and go sit you know, drinks in Tahiti or something like they're not all created by UX people. And I think it's really sad for people who are trying to learn user experience because how are they to vet these boot camps if they don't even know what user experience is? So I think it's being a little exploited right now to use blunt language. <laughs> and I would say that too, because you know, we were talking about the rise of online education and online courses and things. And I think we had this wave of UX becoming very popular with the, I will use the word ease in quotation marks, of creating online courses and online education. And those things coming together, I think, allowed big institutions to make their own boot camps and literally people who graduated from boot camps are making their own boot camps. And I'm like, how does that work? If you just graduated and you haven't worked in UX and now you have your own boot camp, it almost feels like a pyramid scheme in some regards. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to go into this because I, I know you've expressed strong feelings about this in the past. And yeah. I'll quote you again now, if I may. You okay, said, I'm curious. What did I say? <laughs> yeah, ho ho hopefully I'm not misquoting you. I'm pretty sure this is word for word. All right. You You've said, because the UX industry is a free-for-all, there are some mm. very standardized education programs and certifications, yet at the same time, there is a massive amount of education out there that is unvetted and unregulated. So because of that, it makes it very muddy for people trying to figure out their careers. My question is, is this muddiness, this rapid pace at which the education space around UX is evolving. Is this not 
aligned with what makes the field so attractive and so seemingly innovative? Hmm. Let me see if I understand the question. So are you saying because the field is so in demand and there is such a large variety of options and price points of how to learn user experience that it's not surprising that so many people are gravitating towards that because someone with the time and money to do a master's degree could get into it and someone who takes the Google certificate, which maybe there's a free version, there's also a very cheap version from my understanding, and that's all just come together and created this tidal wave of muckiness. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose that is what that question is really touching on, is just the the pace at which the field is evolving and mm. the lack of regulation that exists around it. Is that not yeah. one of its sources of strength? Is it a source of strength? I think it is great that the field has so much visibility and that, you know, I can be riding the chairlift with someone at the ski area and they ask me what I do. And I say, yeah, I do user experience. It means making websites and apps really user friendly. And then they say, oh, my daughter wants to get into that or my cousin is studying that. And so I think that is cool. So maybe if we look at the at the of the look at the field as a person, you know, maybe we're in the terrible twos or toddler stage. I don't have kids, but you know, maybe that might be a possible analogy to consider and we'll come out of this these growing pains like more well-rounded and mature and things, but I think you know, there's also that challenge of companies realize the value of investing in user experience. And from my anecdotally based on conversations and just observations when I'm reading articles and talking to people, it seems like there's not enough kind of seasoned people in management to have the time, energy, patience, and frankly, like ability to teach and mentor <laughs> this giant wave of people who are at the beginning of this journey. And it's, it's a big, I hesitate to use the word problem. You know, I, I think it's an opportunity. I don't think that like one person or one organization will solve this, but, you know, going back to the idea of regulation, I'm not sure that is the solution either, but Concerning education, I just wish there was there was less preying upon people basically to buy so many of these boot camps. You know, like they promise you will get hired. And then I know for a fact some of them have kind of clauses where, well, they'll they'll do that and they'll give you access to that if you apply to X number of jobs a week or if you connect on LinkedIn with this many people, or if you write X articles on Medium per week. And I, I have to think to myself, well, now this grotesque level of like regurgitated content on Medium, maybe we could attribute that to all these bootcamp people being told 
they need to make a personal brand and have a presence. So let me write this surface level article on Medium. And I realized that all sounded very pessimistic and negative, but I think about this all the time. And it, as you can tell, I'm trying to connect the dots. And it's also a little concerning because when people see things on the internet, whether it's related to our industry or news or health or politics or anything, what do we know? We know that a lot of people are not we know that a lot of people consider text on a screen to be the truth, you know? And so there's not this vetting of content that people are consuming. And so I think that's why a lot of these people coming into the field, I know they're very confused because that's why they join my program because they say, I'm overwhelmed with the amount of information about job search and portfolios and resume Every Google search leads to conflicting advice and opinions. And yeah, so, at, so that this, was a bit of a tangent, but. <laughs> but so this messiness, you know, this, this yeah, muddiness that we've spoken about, this has actually opened up an opportunity, I suppose, for you to come in and provide people with a solution and to, to help them to see through the fog and yes. actually land a career or a job, a first start in their career, or maybe a transition point in their career through what you do. What is the largest mistake that you see people making when it comes to their UX career? Mm -hmm. So I think the largest mistake that I see people making is not applying product and UX and design principles to themselves treating their career and themselves like a product because I just did slides for a workshop this weekend, but one slide has the double diamond process, right? Everyone has seen this graphic all over. And I say, you know, there's a reason we follow that process. It's kind of like guardrails, right? It helps us from going too far off the road and then crashing. <laughs> so, if we skip to design in say some app that we're working on, we've probably all worked on a product like this. Oh no, we don't need to do research. I understand the customer. Let's just jump right to designer wireframes, right? Well, what happens? Every project I've worked on like that, it ends up taking longer, more expensive because you have to redo things in high fidelity. Or finally, someone comes around and decides, okay, we should do research. So it's like back to square one. So same thing with our careers, right? Specifically with the job search, so many people, I got to do my resume. I got to do my LinkedIn. Okay, I'm going to go to LinkedIn and start typing bullet points, just stream of consciousness. There's no strategy, right? I'm going to do a job search. I'm going to type UX into LinkedIn and then apply. Well, what jobs did you want to search for though? Like, do you have specific industries or types of companies? So if we've just followed the basic, basic kind of principles and little milestones in that double diamond, that alone would, I think, would help a ton of people. Not a mistake, but a skill that I think is missing or deprioritized these days, I think it's that skill, a couple of them. I think it's critical thinking. I think it's writing. And I think probably if I had to throw in a third, I think it would be research, like basic research. And that doesn't mean like become an expert in the latest research software. That means like being, for, being more mindful 
and being more observant, like take software out of it. It's what happens in your brain as a researcher. I wish I could just plug that into everyone, but a lot of what we do in career strategy lab, you know, yes, we will teach you how to make a resume, but this, I don't run a send me your resume and I will rewrite it for you service. I don't do that. And I don't believe in that because that's nice. It might get you your next job, but then what happens when you need to get your next job? You still don't know how to write a resume. And so I've realized that Career Strategy Lab is really a container for allowing me to, I guess, I'm kind of laughing now, but I guess do everything I just said I want to do, like teach people how to be more mindful, think critically and write, because at the end of the day, that's what we end up doing in Career Strategy Lab. And that's why people come out with portfolios that don't scratch the surface, that actually tell a story of not just what they did, but how they did it, why they did it, what happened, all of those things. So yeah, that allowed a light bulb to go off in my mind. Now I kind of did what I've subconsciously wanted to do. <laughs> oh, good. I feel like you've just self-actualized on Brave UX. <laughs> yes. Like this is actually those things I just said, I guess we do that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, one of the things that I know that you do do at Career Strategy Lab is you help your clients to create what's called a career roadmap. And yes. this sounds like one of those... Uh, pause, ponder, and then proceed type exercises that people go it through. Is. Now, I also understand that this involves them going to former colleagues or clients, depending on how they've been working, and asking them questions to help them to see their own blind spots, which when I was thinking about this, and I've done a similar exercise a few years uh -huh. back, that requires you to be up for some fairly confronting answers you may not always get them, but there's the possibility you're going to hear things that you currently don't align with and that are going to cause some internal friction for you. Right. How do you prepare people to have those kind of conversations with, with those other people so they can get that feedback and really learn and improve their, their, their current state? Yeah, that's a great question. And off the top of my head, I can't think of anyone who has at least verbalized to me that they did this exercise and then discovered, I hesitate to use the word negative, but you know, areas of weakness or things like that. Maybe it has, and maybe they haven't told me, but you know, it's all about how we frame this to the people in career strategy lab, because this whole exercise is meant to be a research project on you. And a lot of the people have never done research, right? If you're a UX writer or an interface designer or design systems person, maybe you've never done a user interview. That's fine. You don't have to. But when it comes to understanding where you have come from and getting that perspective from other people who, you know, the idea is sometimes we're blind to things that we're great at or we're not so great at. And I think that in doing this, because people know the information they retrieve will be used to inform their future, I think it feel, I hope if they receive, like, actually, you're not so good at this, if they receive that feedback, I hope it's maybe less of a sting because they realize, like, I am a researcher right now. I need to take this information and then we're going to create this roadmap 
really so I can design a career path that allows me to do the things I want to do that plays on my strengths and that I can identify any like skills gaps and experience gaps that I might need to fill in to get to that ultimate goal of being a research manager, let's say, or like chief design officer or something. So I think it's it's about it's about context. It's about knowing how will this information be used, right? Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was actually curious because if you're the person coming up with the exercise, generally, and this is a, this is an assumption, so correct me if I'm wrong. Uh-huh. Generally, that comes from a place of personal experience. Oh what, yes. What have you learned? <laughs> what have you learned about yourself having done a, a similar exercise? If you have uh, to to this uh, career roadmap. Yeah, so the the roadmap is a bit of a tangent, but the roadmap initially came to be because early in my career, I worked for a couple of startups, neither of which exist anymore, and definitely, you know, were floundering. And one of them really just had a lot of people issues, let's say. And so I always found myself every three, four months at this one company, not having people not know what to do with me (laughs) because, you know, imagine a small startup, the founder is a designer and what's going to happen. They want their hands all over my design stuff because I was the director of UX. (laughs) And um, so it's like I would do work and then I'd work myself out of a job because it would get to the point where the founder could then swoop in and play around. Right. All that to say, they didn't know what to do with me. So they kind of threw me over to the marketing team, said, you're going to be the marketing department. And then they said, actually, you're going to go be on the tech team and develop this natural language processing thing that the tech team was working on. I was like, whatever. So I did that. It was kind of interesting. I couldn't explain it nowadays, but in all my spare time I had uh, back then when I wasn't researching natural language processing, I made a roadmap for my own career. I thought, heck, I don't want to do this again. So I remember talking to former bosses and friends and gathering this information. But another thing that we have people do, which was equally as powerful, I call it, what did I give it the name of? I made the name mentor mirroring. That's what we call it inside Career Strategy Lab. Basically, thinking to yourself, who are the people I look up to that inspire me, that I read an article about them in Fast Company and I think, man, I want their job someday. So I literally made this keynote presentation for myself. I actually found it on the weekend by accident. And it has Marissa Mayer. It has this shoe designer from Nike. Some other people, I forget who they are. But like looking at that and having forgot about it and looking at what I'm doing now, I mean, it's darn right creepy to see how (laughs) what I did almost, well, 15 years ago, at least definitely influenced what I'm doing today. It it really is. I should do a workshop about it or something because it's pretty, it's pretty creepy how similar it is and the process I just invented really in this moment of desperation at the time. And then I kind of just went and executed on this little keynote presentation I made about what my career would be. And that was that. (laughs) So you made some big changes 
in recent years, right, in the last five years to do what you've mm-hmm. done with Career Strategy Lab. You're now a creative entrepreneur and yep. you were a consultant and on the, on the tools, right? So there's quite a shift there. So mm-hmm. I was curious, what was what was that watershed moment for you? What was the piece of feedback or that realization that you had that the mm-hmm. career path that you were walking down was not aligned to what your ultimate goal was? Right. So I believe I started consulting officially, like quit the full-time job and went for it in 2012. So 10 years ago, and I did that for five years or so on my own, as well as I was a contractor for a friend's UX agency in New York City. And this whole notion of trading dollars for hours was always very frustrating to me, especially when I was a consultant, you know, contracted out for someone else's agency, right? And so I thought to myself, I think I really have a few options. I think I either have to make my own agency, right? Cause then I kind of scale myself, you know, or I have to figure out how to not be doing this project work and productize what I'm doing. So I kind of tried to productize what I did consulting wise. I really productized the idea of UX audits, which I still get asked to do from time to time. Maybe I'll do them again, but I'm a little busy. But I really, really saw the opportunity with online courses. And actually, the first course I ever taught was all about user research. So you can still grab that. It's this complete toolkit and course of like how to decide what type of research to do, how to write a screener, how to find people to participate in your research. It goes through everything in a lot of detail. And once I dipped my toes into that and had a successful initial quote launch of that, I couldn't even tell you what the numbers were. It was so long ago. Once I I saw the results, I thought, this is how I can not be tied to dollars attached to hours. And I have a digital product that I can sell infinite copies of, and it doesn't take any more of my time, especially if it's a self-study program with no office hours. (laughs) So that's what I did. Yeah. And it sounds like you've never looked back. Never really. I mean, yeah, I just keep looking forward to my demise sometimes too much, too far forward in the future. (laughs) Well, I'm going to ask you to cast cast your eyes back just momentarily for me. I want to go back to the, the time before you started the UX portfolio formula or as as Mm -hmm. that was starting. Now I understand that you were helping at that time, you were consulting, helping products to find um, market fit, helping these existing mm-hmm. products to shape themselves into better products so that they could actually be successful. And you had this observation during that time, and I think it's an observation that is somewhat shared across the UX community, that there was this will to just come in and sprinkle, I think is the words you use, some UX into the product and all would be okay. Mm-hmm. And you had described that in terms of your engagement with founders at the time. So you'd mentioned there, you just touched on the fact that you were working in a couple of startups. Mm-hmm. Do founders and business people more broadly that are outside of design, do they really believe that they can just come in and sprinkle some UX or is there something else that's actually going on there? 
That's a great question. And it's also very timely because sometime in the past week, I tweeted something along the lines of how frustrating it is to use a product and then have that product raise either 15 or $25 million, I can't remember, <laughs> raise all this money and ignore they're paying customers begging, like literally begging for basic features inside their community and then have that company announce funding and announce all these like harebrained features that no one asked for and that are totally useless in my opinion. So the point I'm trying to make is I do think that some founders and companies have the mindset that we just need UX to come in and make it look pretty because that's kind of what they mean, right? I do think there is also the challenge of companies, especially newer companies. Once you take money, then you are accountable to investors and things like that, right? So in the case of this one company, which I'm not going to name, although I'd love to, but um, <laughs> In, in case in the case of them, you know, I'm sure now they have founders breathing down their neck and it's less about give your power users the features they need to do X, Y, and Z with their power user needs <laughs> and more about how do we get those new people in the door and handhold the newbies, you know? So a lot of these features I see, and I can think of two products off the top of my head, that I actually use that do this. Like it is a clear shift in messaging and marketing around getting newbies in the door to use their product and a complete disregard for customers that have been there for years who have, you know, large businesses built on these products. And we have to like click our heels twice and go back and forth with support for two weeks to do some basic stuff, you know, that their engineers have to do in the background for us. So. That's kind of like a two-part answer. I think it's a sprinkle UX and it's also this seesaw, you know, kind of that happens when you raise money and the, the impact that it has on your actual customers. Um, I had a conversation with Indy Young a couple of months back and uh, what what came out of that conversation, it's probably no surprise to people that know Indy's work, is that people are generally quite uncomfortable when it comes to sitting with the problem. And you've mm. you've touched on this in the past as well, and I'll just quote you again. You've seen you've said we need to ditch our premature rush to build things, and it's that yes. that rush, <laughs> right? It's that um, momentum or that pressure that we feel to actually make something that is symptomatic mm -hmm. of us not being comfortable sitting with the problem. Now I understand, mm -hmm. and it's no secret that in business there is the, the the profit motive, and if you've taken funding, then there's a runway that will eventually run out. So there's no surprise mm -hmm. that the pressure comes on when it comes to those environments. But how do we put down what I'm framing up here as the solution candy bar in favor of problem problem broccoli? Because that's the that, that's the, equi the equivalent that I can think of is that problems are like broccoli to people oh, where yes. the solution yes. is that is that sugar rush and that candy bar to build. So how do we help people to become more comfortable with taking some time to really understand what it is that they need to solve for their customers 
and avoiding the situation that you've just described where current customers needs get put on the back burner because people are rushing off to build the next big feature. Mm -hmm. I love how you use the analogy of like the solution as a kid in a candy store, because I think when you rush into solution mode, I think people do this because solution means pixels on a screen, right? It means you can see progress. You have that hit of progress for lack of better word, right? And when you have to sit with the problem, there's just a lot of, it's like quicksand, you know, it's not fun. There's lots of just confusing ideas going through your head. You're trying to connect the dots. You think you're onto something. And then this fork comes in the road because you interviewed these new people and you learned something new. And I think sitting with the problem is, is very uncomfortable, especially in this world we live in where people want instant progress. They want the quick fix. They want the diet pill. They want this, that, the other. They want to, you know, change your life overnight by doing X, Y, and Z. It's so simple. So how do we get people to see the value in really embracing the problem? I mean, when I encountered this challenge with startups, one thing I would always try and help them understand is the cost of not understanding the problem. So what is that cost? So on teams, on product teams, for example, it's not just time and money. It's also potentially like morale and employee retention, because if you have this culture where you're constantly building stuff that launches, that doesn't get traction, and then everyone gets mad and you have to redo stuff, that's not good for morale and that's not good for retention, right? And so I think shining a spotlight on that is very important. And I, I love how you said, you know, that rush to build. And when you said that, I kind of had this moment where I thought I was the complete opposite because I actually resisted building this business I've built for so long <laughs> for many reasons. And I was very slow. I, I would not say I was slow to execute on it. I was quick to execute, but I executed very small slivers along the way, you know, like when I first created UX portfolio formula, which I guess is a nice literal name, although I kind of think it's cheesy now, but everyone gets what it is. So when I first had the idea for that, I did a survey, I sent it to my audience. I got hundreds of results back. Then I said, okay, I'm going to tell everyone that filled out the survey that I'm going to do this workshop. Did I have the workshop ready? No, but I made a sales page and hooked up a credit card thing and told people I was running a workshop. And I thought to myself, I forget what the number was. I think it was 30 people. If 30 people don't buy this, we're not doing it. And I'll just refund everyone, right? So I didn't even have the workshop created. I had a vague idea. And then I sent the email and next thing I know, 85 people signed up for this thing. And then I had to shut it down and have a wait list and I had to make it. So I think we could all benefit from move fast, but also move in small increments, if that makes sense, that allow you to validate along the way, you know, because 
if 85 people did that workshop and they all said it was terrible, I wouldn't have done it again. But 85 people did that workshop. Then they said, this was awesome, the 45 minute workshop. Can you do it again? And they literally said, could you make it four weeks long? I thought, uh, yes, and we'll charge it, charge more. And people started to get hired. So that was the validation that maybe subconsciously I was hoping it would fail so I wouldn't have to like pursue this idea. <laughs> but it worked. It worked. And and it was just like, you know, the little like nudge I needed to keep going. But I, I think too many people keep going without that nudge. Does that make sense? Like they just keep going because their ego's like, go, go, go. And I like basically had to be shoved down the uh, product path to keep going <laughs> by this validation. <laughs> I was curious about what you've just what you've just explained there and the role, if any, that vision had for you and what mm. you were creating. And I don't necessarily want you to yeah. post rationalize the vision, but if you take yourself back to that moment in time where you're actually preparing this landing page, you're putting something out there for a course that you haven't yet written, you know, how concrete <laughs> yep. was it what you were going to create like now, 10 years later with career strategy lab? Mm -hmm. So I think at the time it was very concrete in terms of, I wanted to make the best step-by-step -step actually how-to program for creating a portfolio. And that was it. The reason was there was so much content out there that was all just tell a story, show your process, make it easy for the hiring manager. Like all this stuff that, yes, we know, but when you sit down to actually do it, it's, it's a lot harder, right? And so this is literally like step-by-step, -step, like cookbook, recipe, detail level instructions on how to make a portfolio. And, and that's all I did, you know? In the office hours that happened after this product kind of expanded, well, naturally people started asking questions about resumes and about interviews and about this and about that. And in the back of my head, I thought, well, I should obviously create a resume course and a job search course and all this. But I knew that if I did that, two things are going to happen. It's going to create a marketing problem because we have this portfolio brand and all this. And also, I, I mean, I was a one woman show, you know, I didn't have time to do office hours and review portfolios for hours on end each week and make the best resume curriculum. So I consciously, consciously stayed in the lane of portfolios from 2017 until, I don't know, I'm guessing 20 maybe. And then I made very MP MVP versions of a resume and job search course, just honestly, because I do not like repeating myself. And I thought if I do this, I won't have to talk about it on office hours. I can just send everyone to this portfolio or this resume course. But then after, you know, a year and a half of that, I finally had some breathing room because I had, a, um, well, actually I didn't have a team. I had my assistant. <laughs> I didn't have a team until this October, but I had some breathing room and I kind of deprioritized sales if this makes sense, to spend my time 
to develop this new program, the Career Strategy Lab, knowing that if we had some sales dips for the months I was working on this, it was fine because once I got this Career Strategy Lab out of the gate, it was going to cost more and it would be like game changing. And that worked, you know, but I think even now I just was talking to um, like my maybe director of ops, we're kind of feeling each other out right now, but she said, this doesn't just have to be for UX people. It could be for accountants and software developers and, you know, graphic designers, and we should take this wide. And I said, you're not the first person to say this. I've thought the same thing too, but we are then competing with a big, you know, wide audience. And it's kind of a, it's nice to be a, the big fish in the small pond of UX, you know, if all of a sudden we say we're career coaching for everyone, it's almost like no one's going to hear us because it's so noisy out there. So maybe five years from now, we'll be talking about like the white label version of this. I have no idea, but I think, I think we could do it. It's really a business decision and a lifestyle decision for me personally. How big of a company do I want to build? You know, because we were saying I was skiing this morning. And if I had a team of 30 people, of course, I'd have like reports up to me. But I think it would be a lot harder for me to just ditch if I see a snowstorm coming and block off three days in a row because I'm going to be on the mountain, you know? So it, it all... I, apparently everything I do is designed. <laughs> One of the hardest choices that people have to make in, in life and in particular with their careers and their businesses is what not to do. And there is a, mm -hmm. there is a pull in our culture to try and do more, to scale, to raise money, to build a big team. And it can often be mm -hmm. a harder decision to stick in one's lane and continue to add value to those people that you've chosen to serve. I asked you about vision because you'd said something else in a in a talk that I'd listened to, to you give, which was, and I'll quote you again, whenever you have a new idea for a product or a feature, it becomes this big dream. You have this five-year vision of it, right? And that's great, but people only need their little solution that's going to help them with that struggle. Mm -hmm. And this is this is interesting to me. And it's interesting to hear your story as well um, about your business and the vision as that unfolded for you as, you, as you've worked on it, because we're, we also hear in our culture that you need these grand visions. But it actually seems, at least anecdotally to me, that the shaping of the products and services that we do and design as UXs or as creative entrepreneurs may actually, that vision may actually blind us from what's actually important and from what our users need mm. in the now. What thoughts do you have on that if you can relate it back to the, the journey that you've been through with your business? Yeah, so I think it's, it's so true that I remember a founder coming to me years ago and laying out this idea, which I think had to do with like sports gambling or something. I'm not even sure sports gambling and like maybe cars were involved also. And um, I remember he said to me in at least one of our first three meetings, he said, this is going to be the next Netflix. And I know this is going to be my family's like legacy or basically like trust fund. You know, he was trying to say that. And I thought to myself, this is not going to work. <laughs> And it's true because if he couldn't identify like the one product, the one thing, the one person that was going to buy that in the beginning, 
I don't know how you're going to become the next Netflix. It just, it's, and I get it because I get that some people are more visionary and we need those types of people in the world, but we also need those people that kind of serve as check and balance, you know, who are making sure that in order to get to that proverbial destination, we are making the right stops along the way, meaning we're making the right products and then we are being patient. I think that's another key thing here, like being patient enough to sit with that version of the product until it's ready to go to the next you know, destination. <laughs> kind of mixing a lot of analogies here, but you know this, because there are many, there have been many times when I looked at our, so we started with kind of version one of the UX portfolio formula, which was a 45 minute workshop. I then turned that into a four week workshop, which I taught live. So every day for four weeks or not every day, every week for four weeks, I would teach it live. And then when I felt comfortable with that, I made some changes and I recorded it. So that was game changing. And then I sat with that version and the beauty of it was people would go through it, make their portfolio, submit questions for office hours. And I had this literal loop of feedback telling me people don't understand this. People don't understand, you know, how to write a case study or what makes a presentation skimmable and scannable and all these things. And so then I did another version of it. And then just, I don't know, 18 months ago, I did another version of it. And now we have drastically seen the number of questions that come in relating to all those early problems. And our office hours and critiques are less about here is how to do it. They're, they're less me teaching and it's more actually critiquing. And maybe that's a good example of how we stuck with versions of the product that I knew weren't as good as they could be, but in the grand scheme of being a CEO, you're bouncing time, money, this, that, the other, energy. I had to just let kind of a not so nice, not that's the wrong phrase. I had to let a version of the product that was good enough <laughs> sit until we had the time and space to and feedback to redo it, right? That feedback part is key. It doesn't sound very glamorous. You know, I'm glad you said that because I think, you know, if someone had said to me, you're going to be this portfolio person and turn into a career coach, I would not have believed this because I, you know, someone, if you asked me to help you with your resume, you know, five, 10 years ago, in my head, I would be thinking, how do people not know how to write a resume? And when in 2017, before the 45 minute workshop, I had this special folder in my email, which was like, how do I make a portfolio emails? And I would see one and I would just drag it in there. And I fully intended to reply to all these people someday, but I know I never replied to many of them because in my head, I was thinking, how do people not know how to do this? Like, isn't a portfolio a UX project? And it, yeah, it's not a website, but it's content in a presentation that is trying to communicate something. And it has the goal 
of helping someone see your skills and experience. <laughs> like to me, it was just so black and white, like so zero one, how could you not know how to do this, right? And, you know, it's that, I forget the exact phrase, but that idea of like, when you're an expert at something, you don't realize the deficiency that other people have in that skill set. And I guess it made me realize how much of a natural storyteller and designer I am, because I will say in many of the companies I've been in, either full-time or consulting and people I've collaborated with, many of them would say, oh, Sarah's the storyteller. Sarah is the presentation maker. You need a deck, have Sarah do it. So, you know, if you want wireframes that are not lorem ipsum and like you could throw in front of an investor and they're actually going to get it like with real content, I can do that, <laughs> you know? So it, it's not surprising. Yeah. There's actually a bias that David Dylan Thomas taught me about where I think it's a it's a French word and I won't do it justice, but basically it's this <laughs> bias and I'm not even going to try and say it, where we spend so much time in our professional career and our track that we see the world around us through only that lens. And mm. what I mean by that is that we can often have blinkers on and not mm -hmm. be aware of why other people can't see what it is that we see and solve the problems that we solve. Mm -hmm. uh, you obviously, you saw that problem. You had that folder on your email. You were collecting those <laughs> responses, intending to get back to them. <laughs> and you kind of, you have, right? Your reply to them was actually to create the business that you created. It wasn't individual yeah. replies, but it was something more substantial that they could use to help them with. But I understand that while yeah. you were going through this, process of forming this business over this uh, period of years that you have, that you had a framework that you used during your user research to help you to better understand what the uh, world was like for the people that you were intending to serve. Now, I, I understand it's got three parts. And I, mm. I wanted to ask you about this because this is, to me anyway, was quite a useful way of framing up how you can better understand your users. So what is this framework all about? Mm -hmm. So I think the framework we're talking about is just these three really simple questions that, you know, you could ask to understand, I think, many situations, you know, and the first, okay, imagine you're on a river and you're on one side and the other side of the river and there's the river in between. So the first question is like, where are we now or where are my potential customers now what is their current reality what are they doing how are they trying to solve this problem are they trying to solve this problem do they even know it's a problem who are they currently paying to solve this problem right so what is my current reality and we actually use this framework in career strategy lab when people think about their career so where am i now or where are my people now what is the like proposed future or dream state, you know, if we could wave a magic wand, what does an easier, more productive, more useful world look like for them, more fulfilling, et cetera. So what's that desired future reality? And then we have to think, well, what's stopping them? What's in the middle? So the middle is the obstacles, you know, is it time? Is it money? Is it, in, in our case, it was lack of, available and trusted 
detailed step-by-step instructions on how to make a portfolio, right? That was missing because we heard that there was too much surface level vague advice just saying to tell a story, but no one was telling how to tell a story, how to show your process. What does that actually mean? And it's funny because if we think back to our beginning of our conversation, we talked about research and how a lot of people like to skip research and things like that. But this is such a great example of how just sitting down to answer those questions, like I would consider that research. You know, research doesn't have to be you hire a research firm and they charge you tens of thousands of dollars and it takes six or eight weeks and there's all these formal presentations and meetings and emails and stuff. Like just simply answering those three questions could start dipping your toes into that research and, and, and understanding those people. And I would even argue, maybe it causes you to stay in that research mode longer than you thought you would, you know, like may it's, it's almost like you have one piece of candy and you say you're only going to have one and then you have 10 pieces of candy, you know? So I think for a lot of people who've never done research before, especially founders, what, if they did that exercise, they might actually have fun and want to keep doing it to get understand more and more and more, you know, especially if you can tie that with the consequences involved in building too fast together, that might be convincing enough to get people to buy in. <laughs> yeah. And that's coming back to what you were saying earlier about taking risk out of that process. You know, what's the cost of, yeah. of not understanding these people now, presumably yeah. answering those questions actually involves going out and interviewing and getting to know the people that you're seeking to serve. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I will say a lot of my early research for this, it was not one-on-one -on -one conversations with people because I had all their emails that they sent me. Some of them, what I remember, I cut and pasted into Google Docs to see how long one person's email was. It was 2,500 words. I promise you I didn't read the whole thing because I was too busy. But like, I had so much research, like, ask people about their careers and they will write paragraphs, you know, their entire life story and their childhood relationships and all this stuff. It's kind of mind blowing, but research early on in this product also involved me being very observant about what was happening on social media and in online groups. Like this is one of my favorite forms of research. I don't know what the official word is. I call like social media listening or called stalking maybe, I don't know, in a nice way, <laughs> snooping, lurking. Uh, yes, lurking. So I'm in a lot of UX groups on LinkedIn, on Reddit, on Facebook. <laughs> I, I've also seen myself discuss, discussed in groups and I've just not commented because it was such a fascinating experience. But that was an amazing way for me to figure out all the challenges that people were having. And to this day, you know, I'm still in these groups and on a Saturday morning, I might see someone asking for advice about portfolios. And I think I tweeted this this weekend as well, but something to the effect of it's so satisfying when I see a question that someone has and I can just cut and paste a link to an article or video I wrote and it's spot on and it saves me time from writing the answer out over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, I was curious also about when you first started off, you mentioned, just cast your mind back to about five minutes ago, you mentioned that you mm -hmm. emailed out your your contact list. Now, just oh, to, yes. so people have some context for this, I understand that that list at the time, back in 2017, was around 10,000 uh -huh. people. But yeah. nowhere have I been able to uncover 
what it was that you did prior to build a list uh, of that size to actually go out uh, to and then test your your idea for this for this mm -hmm. product mm -hmm. so i don't know when but sometime in i would say probably around 2010 2012 something like that i realized you know as i was going down this entrepreneurial path as a consultant I thought I need an email list so that I can talk to people. And if I have a product one day, I'll have people to tell about this, you know? So I set up MailChimp and I started doing a weekly newsletter. And I don't know what number we're on now, but it's definitely in the 300s. So it's been going for a long time. And I kind of became known for this newsletter called the UX Notebook. And it's just five or six articles, some like pondering of mine at the top of the email and the occasional event or, you know, random thing in there. And people love it. And that's how I was able to have that list. And I think for anyone listening who is an entrepreneur or thinking or a consultant or thinking you might possibly go down that path, the number one thing I think you can do is, is build your own email list because you can have Twitter followers, you can have a Substack, you can have all these things, but unless you have the email address, like you do not have a direct line to those people, right? If Twitter, you know, went away tomorrow, if Facebook went away tomorrow, if YouTube, if everything went away tomorrow, I would be fine because I have an email list of tens of thousands of people. <laughs> so I think, Everyone gets so excited about the next social media platform and the clout that is perceived because you have this many followers is kind of a vanity metric because if that went away, you can't contact those people. Mm, so true. And just yeah. just being mindful of of that and of time. I've I've I better go and go and build my email list because I've <laughs> I've neglected that. Before, well, MailChimp is a great place to start. I did, but I did graduate. I did MailChimp and then I graduated and I went to ConvertKit. And then from ConvertKit, now I'm on something called ActiveCampaign, which is much more e-commerce oriented and kind of automations and everything. But, you know, there's so many easy ways to do it. And it doesn't mean you need to email your list every single week, you know, but um, in the beginning, we did have a weekly cadence and that helped helped us, us me, uh, become, you know, top of mind for people. Mm. Well, clearly, Sarah, you're someone who's quite determined and you've shown up repeated, repeatedly and reliably for many years now. Clearly, you put a lot of energy and effort into what it is that you're trying to create and to helping UXers with their careers. And you've been pretty open about how that has been successful for you commercially. But if we put the commercial success and aspects to the side for a minute, yeah. what is it that you wake up for every morning? You know, why do you keep doing this day after day, month after month, year after year? Mm-hmm. I think for me, it's it's kind of twofold. I think going back to what we said in the beginning, I feel like I wake up every day and I know kind of what's going to happen, but I also know that I will probably learn something new or find, fix a problem, you know, troubleshoot something in Zapier or something like, 
I like the kind of thrill of adventure and discovering and solving problems. So I think that's part of it. I think too, you know, like I said in the beginning, how important it is to treat our careers and our lives like products and be really intentional. And I totally recognize that I'm in a really lucky situation where I had the flexibility and, and space to create this business that also gives me the space to live the life I want to live, you know, but it was very much by design because I needed to have these programs, for example, that would allow me to not be doing client work. Cause if I do client work, my calendar is just a bunch of meetings, you know? So I think that's really what keeps me going. Like on this constant adventure, continuing to live this lifestyle I want to live. And of course, like when I started doing all this, you know, I was not thinking about the impact that we were going to have on people's lives. Like, did I think we would help people get hired? Yes, of course. But I didn't anticipate getting emails from people saying like one guy said something to the effect of, I got a new job, doubled my salary, and I just told my parents and my fiance and we're all crying. And I was like, oh my gosh, like if you increase your salary by 20 or 30 grand, like that's life-changing because you could pay off debt or down payment for a house. Or I think like one of my friends is a financial uh, planner and I think, well, amazing. Like if we compound this out for 20 years, you think of the retirement contributions and your next salary and your next salary, like you've just catapulted yourself into a new tier of finance, you know? And so when I think about, it's not just the money, it's about the massive change that it can have in people's lives, you know? So that's really fulfilling. And I think now that I have like, time to really absorb those testimonials, that's really fun too when those come in the inbox or our community. Well, that's a great place for us to finish up, Sarah. What a great conversation. <laughs> I've really enjoyed spending yeah. some time with you today. Thank you for so generously sharing your insights with me. Well, thank you. This has been a great conversation and uh, we'll have to do we'll have to do a follow-up sometime, see what's new in like a couple of years. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, let's do it. We, we will make that happen. Sarah, <laughs> if people want to find out more about you and Career Strategy Lab, what's the best way for them to do that? Yep. The best way is to go to careerstrategylab.com. If you're curious just about me, I have my own website, saraduty.com. And then on social media, so Twitter and YouTube, I'm Sarah Duty. And Instagram, it's saradutyux. I locked down my personal one, but I have my saradutyux one for everyone else. Perfect. Thanks, Sarah. I'll make yeah. sure that I link to all of your social medias and to Career Strategy Lab in the show notes. And to everyone that's tuned in, it's been great having you listen to this conversation as well. As I mentioned, uh, all Sarah's contacts will be in the show notes as well as all the other good stuff that we've covered in terms of detailed chapters for YouTube. If you've enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class experts in UX design and product management, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast 
give us a review. Those are really helpful. And also pass the podcast along to someone else that you think might find value from these conversations. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn. Just type in Brendan Jarvis and I'm sure you'll find me. And there's also a link to my profile at the bottom of the show notes on YouTube and the podcast platforms. Or you can head on over to thespaceinbetween.co.nz. That's thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, keep being brave. Hey, hey.